Healthcare Policy Unpacked, a podcast exclusively for Health Plan Alliance members, produced in partnership with Spring Street Exchange and Policy Insider Chris Condolucci. Welcome to our Health Plan Alliance members. I'm Dennis Bolin. I work for you at the Health Plan Alliance. We're recording today the October episode of our Policy Unpacked podcast. And with me is our go-to guy in Washington, Chris Condolucci. Hi, Chris. Hey, Dennis. How are you? Hopefully you are enjoying some fall weather. I am, Chris. Uh, you know, one of my favorite times of the year is that day when it switches from summer to fall and you can just kind of feel the change in the temperature. We're not quite there yet here in Texas, but I know that most of the rest of the country is. So you're right, turning our attention to the fall. And Chris, with the fall this year being an election year, you know, our attention is turning to the midterm elections. So I definitely want to talk with you about that today. But first, I think we have some other items that we can cover as well. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Okay, so just some of the things that were on the top of my mind based on what I've heard from our Health Plan Alliance members. There have been some regulations coming out regarding the ACA's family glitch. Everybody I talk to is still has their eyes on the public health emergency, the PHE, and what the status of the extension and what the future of that looks like. There's been some additional implementing guidance for the advanced explanation of benefits. That's got everybody's attention. And then the prescription drug reports. There were some Q&As that have come out and uh, got some deadlines for responding to that. And that's all in addition to the midterm elections. So you've got a lot of ground for us to to cover today. So why don't we start in with that first one that I mentioned, which is the family glitch. And maybe you can, you know, start by defining for us what that is. Yeah, Dennis, it's an interesting issue to say the least. And one that has frustrated families, ACA supporters, and Democratic policymakers for a number of years now. And speaking of a number of years, Dennis, This issue has lingered for the past nine years after the Obama administration's Treasury Department interpreted the Affordable Care Act statute in the following way. Now, to answer your question, Dennis, it's a little complex, so so bear with me. But back in 2013, the Treasury Department issued regulations saying if an employee is offered a self-only employer-sponsored plan, and if the cost of that self-only plan does not exceed around 10% of the employee's household income, then the employee's dependents, the spouse and or children, if any, are not eligible for a premium subsidy, even if the cost of the family plan that's covering the spouse and those children dependents, if any, exceeds around 10% of the employee's household income. So this was referred as a family glitch where really family members of an employee were locked out of accessing a premium subsidy if the cost of this self-only plan solely for the employee did not exceed around 10% of income, even though, as stated, the cost of the family plan may have been expensive, therefore exceeding 10% of income. Now, the Biden administration just fixed 
this family glitch through final regulations. And again, a little complex here, Dennis, so bear with me. But the final regulations now say, if an employee and their dependents are offered a family plan by the employee's employer, and if the cost of that family plan does indeed exceed around 10% of the employee's household income, then the dependents, i.e. the spouse and or their children, if any, will be eligible for a premium subsidy if these dependents go to the exchange and purchase an individual market family plan through that exchange. So that is the fix to the family glitch. Now, let me say a couple last things here, Dennis. So please note that if an employee himself or herself is still offered a self-only plan in which the cost does not exceed around 10% of income, which is the old rule, the rule that I described earlier, if the employee is still offered that self-only plan, then the employee is not eligible for a subsidy. But if that family plan does exceed 10% of income, then the family is eligible for a premium subsidy, even though the employee is not. So that adds a little bit of complexity here, Dennis, and I'm sure you might be shaking your head right now uh, because there are kind of two standards now, but the bottom line is, is where families were previously locked out of accessing a premium subsidy because the family plan was too expensive. Well, now, if that family plan's too expensive, they, that family, those dependents, actually will be able to access the subsidy. Now, the last thing I'll say, Dennis, is, is why is fixing the family glitch important? Well, first, it's October, and we're only weeks away from the midterm elections, as we uh, discussed earlier. So making good on a fix like this can definitely be messaged on the campaign trail, and it certainly will in hopes of helping get votes come November 8th. Now, also, the 2023 open enrollment period is starting November 1st. And while these final regulations are not effective until January 1, 2023, family shopping for an exchange plan during this coming November and December will be able to apply for this new access to the premium subsidies once the exchange plan coverage starts on January 1, 2023. So there's a little bit of coordination in why the administration issued these regs now in October, right before open enrollment, people could shop. And then once January 1, 2023 starts, which starts the 2023 plan year, that's when this new access to the subsidy will be effective and will help these families. And then going forward, if family members drop off of an employer-sponsored family plan, they will have a special enrollment period available to them. So then they too can enroll in an exchange plan and access the premium subsidies in many cases, you know, for the first time. Yeah, well, Chris, here, as you say, nine years later, and the ACA really baked into the healthcare industry. Um, it's interesting that we're still dealing with, with some of the regulations. And it's very important that you keep us updated on this because I hear from a lot of the Health Plan Alliance members who were never on the exchange or they were on the exchange, dropped off, have bitted their time for the a period that they had to remain off, and now are, with this enrollment, coming back on 
the exchanges. So this topic couldn't be more important to our members. So thanks for keeping us updated on that. And I want to turn now to kind of a related piece around the exchanges, which is the PHE, the public health emergency. And, you know, we've been living under the threat of its demise, you know, for a couple of cycles here. Sure. I understand that it now it's been extended into mid-January of 2023. What are your predictions in this space? Yeah, and I'll just start with a prediction. I, I could very well see the end of the PHE coming mid-January. So in other words, I will guesstimate that we will not see an extension past mid-January of 2023. And my speculation really rests on you know, hey, the president is even messaging in 60 Minutes interviews and in other publications that the pandemic is over. And some may argue that it's not quite over. Dr. Fauci's had some comments in that subject. We are hearing warnings about potential spikes and variants emerging during the fall and winter. But I do think that most of us stakeholders, as well as government officials, agree that the pandemic is over. So hearing that the administration, the federal government is is messaging that the pandemic is over and that COVID is behind us really leads me to believe that it's almost a pre-message for the federal government to officially inform states that the PHE is going to end, you know, as as soon as as mid-January. And when it comes to informing the government, informing the states, of when the PHE might be ending, HHS has informed states that the department will give states 60 days advance notice that the PHE will be ending. Well, 60 days backing out of mid-January brings us into about mid-November. So if the PHE indeed is going to end, like I think it's going to end, we will hear from HHS mid-November. And another aspect of this speculation is, you know, as we've discussed, there's a lot of healthcare coverage implications for ending the PHE. As we've discussed, Medicaid coverage and Medicaid eligibility, as a general matter, cannot be questioned during the public health emergency. So there are many families that are currently on Medicaid that once there are determinations or redeterminations as it relates to eligibility, Many of those beneficiaries will fall off of Medicaid coverage, and the Urban Institute and others have indicated that it could be 14 to 16 million people in that range losing coverage solely because of the end of the PHE. Well, we have a midterm election coming up November 8th, and if an announcement came mid-October or prior to that, that could have some implications from a political perspective so there's some politics here, in my opinion, that is leading someone like myself to say, okay, we're more likely going to see an announcement mid-November. Midterm elections are over. The politics with an announcement are no longer as acute. And again, we're already hearing messaging that the pandemic is over, kind of giving advance notice to states that they've got to start ramping up efforts between now and let's say February 1 to figure out how to transition those individuals losing Medicaid coverage onto some other 
health coverage. And that brings us to the exchange, which you mentioned, Dennis, which is many states, many carriers, many companies that specialize in enrolling individuals in exchange plans are ready to jump at the moment that the PHE ends and the redeterminations begin to try to shift any beneficiaries that are coming off Medicaid onto a subsidized plan, which, you know, another thing, the uh, enhanced premium subsidies will help those consumers purchase and better afford an exchange plan, which is why it was so important for Congress to ultimately extend those enhanced premium subsidies. So it kind of all fits together in things that we've been talking about to continue talking about this, but also to conclude or at least guesstimate that we might see an end come mid-January. Chris, you've hit on a significant pain point for our members. As they're thinking about this recertification process, some of our members could be dealing with tens of thousands, maybe even 40 or so thousand members in a month that they have to recertify. And this is an educational process and a communication process and a motivational process to get their members to submit the paperwork and go through this. So we need to be monitoring this uh, over the next couple of months because our members, as you suggest, they can't turn on a dime on this topic. They're going to have to lay the groundwork to be prepared Agreed. for mid-January. So thank you for putting it at the top of our priority list. Another thing I wanted to cover with you is you've told us that we should expect guidance on many of the other provisions in the No Surprises Act, including the advanced explanation of benefits. If I understand correctly, a request for information or RFI has been put out by some of the federal departments asking a whole lot of questions about how they should develop implementation on this. So can you get us up to speed there? Sure, sure. And, and the RFI is interesting. And even taking a step back to your point, back in August of 2021, the federal department said, hey, look, there's a bunch of quote unquote, as we refer to it, I'm air quoting, other provisions of the No Surprises Act that are you know, primarily intended to increase transparency of out-of-pocket exposure, in-network, out-of-network providers, things of that sort, even medical claims and other healthcare price information. And hey, everybody, um, we're not going to be issuing guidance on these other provisions until at least 2022. So many of us have been expecting to see some sort of guidance on these quote-unquote other provisions. Um, and we really haven't yet, but we have seen the first step toward implementing the AEOB requirement or advanced explanation of benefits in the form of an RFI. And what's interesting about the RFI is it's almost a pre-step toward actually issuing implementing guidance. So it's not even a proposed regulation that leads to then a final regulation. It's actually a step before proposed regulations where the RFI asks, to your point, Dennis, as you raised, they, they ask stakeholders a bunch of questions. And the departments are basically asking the stakeholders, how should we implement, in this case, the AEOB requirement? And there's a number of issues that the federal departments include in the RFI, ranging from sending this information is pretty complex. It's uh, pretty burdensome. And, you know, 
maybe the best way to send this information is electronically through application program interfaces or utilizing the interoperability rules that have been developed over the past, you know, six, four, two years as the previous administration and current administration continue to implement the final interoperability rule that came out um, in 2020. Can we utilize those rules is really what the departments are asking. So that's one aspect to this RFI. And I don't want to go into too much detail on the electronic side of things, but that's an area that the departments feel is, is something that can be utilized when it comes to sharing this information that needs to be included in the explanation of benefits. There are some other questions relating to HIPAA privacy. And this kind of leads to what is all the information that needs to be included in the AEOB? And there's a ton of information that needs to be included in there. I'm not going to go through it all, but I'll offer one, in-network rate, two, diagnostic codes, CPT codes, the actual medical item or service or medical episode that is at the center of uh, this particular uh, scheduled medical procedure or medical service. Um a good faith estimate of what the out-of-pocket exposure might be for the participant, for the patient here, and also a good faith estimate for the actual cost of the service. And this good faith estimate of the cost of the service is also an important part of this RFI because the departments have yet to issue guidance telling medical providers how to develop this good faith estimate and how that good faith estimate needs to be communicated to the patient as well as to the plan. And so there are a number of questions relating to, again, how should the provider be communicating this information to the patient as well as to the plans? And then lastly, Dennis, there is a lot of overlap in the AEOB with another provision that comes through the transparency and coverage regulation. The transparency and coverage regulation, which came out back in October of 2020, includes the disclosure of in-network and out-of-network prices. But this tick rule also includes what's called a cost-sharing liability tool, which is a tool that carriers and self-insured plans have to make available to policyholders and participants and the cost-sharing liability tool is intended to provide information to the patient as it relates to their in-network rate, their out-of-pocket exposure, the good faith estimate of what the provider's cost is going to be for the scheduled medical service, which is many of the items that I just articulated that's supposed to be included in the AEOB. So because of this overlap, the RFI actually asks stakeholders, how can we consolidate and coordinate the AEOB requirement with the cost-sharing liability tool. So concluding here, Dennis, I will say the RFI has a bunch of technical questions in specific areas that I just mentioned and some others that I didn't mention. And this is all in an effort for the departments to ask the public, the stakeholders, basically, how should we, the federal government, implement these rules? Well, you know, that's an interesting perspective on it, Chris, that giving our members a chance to respond. Do you know when the deadlines are? Are there any timelines that are involved in this RFI? 
Comments are due November 15th. Great. Thank you. That's super helpful because I got to tell you, there's nothing that makes our compliance executives more nervous than the phrases good faith effort or good faith estimates. They like the details that you talked about. So we'll continue to follow this closely as well. I've got one more policy question for you, Chris, before we turn our attention to the midterm elections. And that is around the prescription drug reports that are due December 27th. What do we know about what the federal departments have recently said about those reports? Can you give us an update there as well? Yeah. In the interest of time, I'll try to get through this quickly. But it's it's information that I would hope that many of our HPA members know. And, and many of these Q&As that I mentioned were more or less reminders, were more or less pointing stakeholders back to instructions for these reports that were issued back on June 30th. And the more recent Q&As, which were issued September 23rd, said, hey, look, third-party administrators or the plan or the carrier themselves is going to have access to certain information that must be included in these reports. And that information I have affectionately referred to as plan, I'm doing air quotes again, plan-related information, which includes total premiums paid for the plan, total out-of-pocket cost-sharing that participants spent, the number of covered lives for a particular plan or the number of covered lives for a particular carrier. So this plan-related information must be included in these prescription drug reports, which is why we've always said these prescription drug reports is more than just reporting on prescription drugs. But the department said, look, carriers and plans and third-party administrators, you have access to that information. And we recognize that. And we recognize that you're not going to have access to information relating to prescription drugs, which the pharmacy benefit managers are going to have access to. So the PBMs have access to other pieces of information that must be included in these prescription drug reports which is all related to prescription drug information that the carrier spent, that is spent by the plan. And again, the departments are saying, look, you have multiple entities here that have access to different information that must be included in the reports. So here's what you got to do, everybody. Either you've got to work together, TPAs, plans, and carriers with your PBMs, and each of you fill out the respective report your portion of it, share it with the other, and then ultimately submit it to the federal government. Well, the federal government also recognizes that PBMs, carriers, sometimes they don't want to share information with each other. So the federal department said, that's okay too. So if that's the case, you can each multiple entities submit your own respective portions of the report to the federal government, which is going to cause a little bit of confusion because you're going to have two reports reported for one plan or for one carrier. And that's going to cause some confusion, which has caused some confusion, but which is, again, why the federal departments came out and said, look, we recognize there's multiple entities. Please work together. But in the event you can't, yes, you can submit separate reports. And that's primarily what these Q&As were reminding everybody about. Uh, well, that's interesting, Chris, because... Anytime you ask our members about the relationship with their PBM, it, it, it's just a big black box. 
So, you know, these relationships of sharing information and and data are going to be tricky for us to navigate through here. So thanks for bringing that up as well. So in the few minutes that we have left, Chris, I'd like to turn our attention to the upcoming midterm elections. I know we'll be talking a lot more about them during our November podcast after the election But what should we be watching for over the next three weeks or so leading up to November? Yes, it is the question du jour of, you know, what can we expect out of the upcoming elections? And depending on those outcomes, you know, what are the implications from a healthcare policy perspective? Now, one of the things that you and I, Dennis, tried to do very, very adeptly is avoid the politics of things. We talk about the policy, and we talk about the implications. That's what we specialize in, and that's what we're here for for our members. So we don't necessarily want to talk about politics, but kind of at the end of the day, elections is pure politics, right? But instead of giving our own opinion on where we think things might go politically, let's just look to the pollsters and the political pundits and what the experts are all saying when it comes to reading campaign data and reading the tea leaves of where the electorate might be. Well, the experts and the pollsters are saying that the House of Representatives is likely, or there's a high likelihood that the House of Representatives flips Republican, such that Republicans are in the majority in the House of Representatives. In the Senate, it's a little more of a jump ball. Republicans could take back the majority in the Senate. Democrats could retain majority in the Senate. But to an extent, from my perspective, as I observe, it almost doesn't matter if the Senate flips Republican or remains Democrat. If it's well accepted that the House is going to flip, well, then we know that we're going to have split government. And if we have split government, many of the priorities that the Biden administration and congressional Democrats campaigned on in the run up to the 2020 election and what congressional Democrats and the Biden administration pursued over the last year and a half, more than almost two years, close to two years now, if we have split government, those policy priorities are no longer going to be pursued because Civics 101 and how a bill becomes a law, legislation has to pass the House, the Senate be signed by the president. Well, if Republicans hold the majority in the House, they are unlikely to pursue the same policy priorities that congressional Democrats and the Biden administration have pursued over the last year and a half. So that then leads to the conclusion that from a implications perspective, if we have split government, there's not going to be a lot of legislation going on. So then what does that mean? Well, the Biden administration will, and we've seen precedent where previous administrations do the same thing when faced with split government, the administration is going to turn up the heat and the volume and churn out more and more regulations, implementing their own policies to meet their own policy and political ends. So get ready, everybody, for more and more regulations over these next years, regulations and guidance coming out of the Biden administration. And the last thing I'll I'll say here is what could be some of those regulations and guidance? Well, we know the Inflation Reduction Act just passed some drug pricing reforms. Well, it's already on tap where the administration is supposed to implement those provisions. But will the administration go a little further because they were unable to legislate certain reforms, and now that the Biden administration has the pen in writing rules, 
can the Biden administration try to, for all intents and purposes, legislate through regulations? Maybe they'll try, maybe they won't. Regardless of what they do or don't do, the administration that is, I, I leave you to say this, we will likely see lawsuits because the new normal these days is an opposing party will oftentimes file a lawsuit against a regulation. So the conclusion here is, if we have split government, which it looks like we will, limited legislation, lots of regulations, and very likely lawsuits filed against those regulations. Oh, joy. Uh, yeah, exactly. Thanks for, you know, ending on such a high note there, Chris. And I, I'm giving you a hard time because I, I think you're absolutely right. Even if there are not legislative policies that come out, as your discussion and overview today demonstrates so clearly, there's so much in the implementation and regulatory refinement, if you will, and possibly new regulations around existing policies that are going to uh, more than keep us busy and keep us on our toes. So as always, Chris, thank you for giving us this overview. Along with you, I will be watching closely the polls leading up to the November election, and I encourage all of our listeners to vote and have an impact on the outcomes. So Chris, as always, thank you for leading us through our discussion today. Yes, always fun to be here. Happy Halloween to everybody. Happy election day watching. And we look forward to talking about it on the other side. We'll talk with you there, Chris. Take care, everyone. Until next time. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode in a few weeks. Until then, keep an eye on your inbox for the next issue of our Policy Brief. To engage in a live Q&A with Chris Condolucci and our friends at Spring Street Exchange, be sure to register for our upcoming Policy Forum. To learn more, visit healthplanalliance.org. See you next time on Healthcare Policy Unpacked.